Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. Grateful to gather here. It's so good to see you. How many like comfortable seats? Amen? Amen. I tell you what, it feels good. It looks a lot better, too. It feels like a church again and uh, that we can gather and celebrate and worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today I want to talk to you a little bit about ambition. Ambition. What is your ambition? What is your hope? What did you always want to be when you were a kid? For me, I had a very serious ambition to be a cowboy. I mean, I grew up watching Westerns, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, John Wayne, all those things. I really wanted to be a cowboy. I thought that was totally possible and totally reasonable. You know, one of my biggest prayer requests as a kid was that I would come home and there would be a pony. If you know me, you know the story. Uh, But God knew that wasn't best for me because I really couldn't even take care of a dog, much less a pony, especially in a small yard in the city. So it didn't really make sense. But God has put ambition in our hearts, and we have ambition, and we're looking forward to something. Later, I wanted to be a baseball player or maybe, maybe a cowboy in the winter and a baseball player in the summer, something like that. I thought that was reasonable. But, you know, as you grow up, your ambitions change, don't they? And a lot of times it's because we kind of realize that the old West isn't anymore and that maybe my baseball skill kind of peaked at the age of 11, you know, and you start to realize I need to really think beyond that and I need to start thinking about some other ambition that God might have for me. One time I wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force and, and then I later wanted to be an engineer. But as we grow, we start to see kind of differently as more things are revealed to us our ambitions change. And the same is true spiritually. As when we first meet Jesus, we have certain ideas and certain things that we think about that he's going to do for us in our lives. But as we continue to walk with him, those ambitions adjust, and I would say become much richer. Well, today we're going to look at a very ambitious man named Peter. And his thinking about Jesus and how Jesus has to adjust that. And as we open God's word, I want you to be ready this morning for God to adjust your ambition. And what does he want to make of you? Because a lot of times we kind of have an initial thought, Jesus, this is what you want. This is what I want. So I want you to I want you to make sure that you deliver it for me. But as we walk with him, we realize that maybe his ambition for us is different, but much greater, but much greater. Look with me at Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. The Gospel of Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know that there are four stories of the life of Jesus told by four different people from four different perspectives, and that Mark is perhaps the most concise, to the point, No nonsense. Mark would have been a great reporter about just this is what happened. And I love the conciseness of it. And this is all you need to know. And this is from the book of Mark. Now, this story about Peter happens really right after Jesus starts to want to explain things differently to his disciples. He's given them kind of the initial overview. They start to understand who he is. 
But Jesus realizes they need to be told in a different way. They need to kind of expand their thinking. And so he starts to change the way he talks with them. And last week, in the verses right before this, we see Jesus healing a man partially. And then completely. And we see Jesus say to the man at, Beth, at, at uh, Bethsaida, he says, he says I want, I'm touching your eyes. I actually spit in his eyes. Ugh. But hey, if you're blind, you don't even know he's spitting, right? And then after it's over, you're pretty happy that you can see. But um, in those days, that was kind of a medicinal thing. The, the saliva was a picture of, you, of your healing coming out of your mouth. And, and so Jesus heals this man. He, he touches him. And he says, can you see anything? And he says, yeah, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. And you're thinking, that's, that's kind of weird. Um, this guy was probably somebody who initially could see but lost his sight because he knew what people should look like, and he knew they shouldn't look like trees, right? And so he can see partially, and there's initial healing, but it's kind of fuzzy, and I don't really understand what's happening. And then Jesus touches him again, and he sees clearly. Remember, miracles always are more important than the actual healing. It's what they say about God himself, right? And so this miracle is God, is Jesus' way of introducing the next set of teaching, which is going to build on what they already know, but it's going to expand what they know to a much greater level. And the picture is that Jesus often reveals himself in steps or stages, right? He, he reveals something initially, and then he later builds on that and tells us something else that, we, that kind of blows up our initial view, but makes it much more clear. We can see as it says in 1 Corinthians, now we see through a glass darkly, but in that day we will see him face to face. Most people that come to Jesus, it's rare in my experience in my 58 years is, is that people don't always come to Jesus like a, like a lightning bolt, right? It's not a lot of Apostle Paul um, conversion stories on the road to Damascus, right? Where suddenly Jesus appears and there's a bright light and he's blinded and he comes to Jesus and he gets saved. Most people, it's, you know, I, I knew somebody as a child. And then I knew somebody else. And then there was an experience. And then there was a sermon. And then there was an experience. And then I came to Jesus. It's usually a step-by-step -step process. And so today... We're going to see Jesus begin to reveal himself to his disciples and help them understand personally who he is. And it's going to be a little bit shocking for them, a lot shocking for them. And he, he's going to adjust what they think and what they understand. Verse 27 of chapter 8, the Bible says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? When the Bible mentioned places, it's always important to kind of understand what those places mean. And the place, Caesarea Philippi, was a city or a village built about 12 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a place where they did child sacrifice. As a matter of fact, the stream that flowed from this mountain was often filled with blood. As people sacrificed to the god Pan. It was a holy site for worshipers of this god. But it was a place where people kind of proclaimed their allegiance to this God. And so as Jesus is walking along to this place, Caesarea Philippi, he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? People are coming to this city and they, they come in and they worship to proclaim Pan God. Who do people say that I am? 
And what he's doing is he's wanting his disciples to kind of make a statement and for them to kind of own what other people are thinking because he's about to ask another question. But he wants to know, who do people say that I am? Who do others say that I am? In verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And this is something that Mark has reported back in chapter 6 when Jesus' popularity begins to grow. Uh, people start to say these three things that, well, he must be John the Baptist, come back to life, which doesn't make any sense because Jesus and John the Baptist were alive together before John was killed. But you know, when people talk about Jesus, a lot of things that they say don't make a lot of sense, right? Um, or if you're not John the Baptist, maybe you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. And it's a lot like what you would hear today. Jesus, you're a good guy, but you're not God. Jesus, you're a, you're a powerful, people think you're a powerful person, but you're not God. You're a good man. That's what people say all the time. They won't say Jesus is bad, but you're not God. And that doesn't make really a lot of sense because if he was good, he wouldn't claim to be what? The Messiah. He wouldn't claim to be God. So John the Baptist, Elijah, forerunners. Elijah was prophesied to come back before the Messiah. John the Baptist, the one who did proclaim the Messiah. Other prophets, you're a good guy. This is what everyone else thinks. And then Jesus asks them the question. He gets very, very personal. And he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say? It's like he's pointing to you. Who do you say? And in the Greek, the word you is, is first in the sentence. It's you, but you. Who do you say that I am? So Jesus always makes it personal, doesn't he? This morning, he's asking each of us, who do you say that I am? Peter steps up. Peter the bold. Peter who's very confident in what he thinks. Right, He steps right up and he's a spokesman for them all. And he says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. And for them, what that would have meant, you're Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one who's going to be the most amazing leader and powerful king we've ever seen. You're going to bring us back to David. You're going to, you're going to make us, you're going to resume the glory that David brought us. You're going to be a king like that. You're going to solve all of our problems. That's what he meant when he said, you are the Christ. You're him. You're the one we've waited for. Notice what Jesus says, verse 30. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about it. Why? Can you imagine Jesus today coming and saying, hey, don't tell anybody what you know about me. I mean, we're told to tell, to go and tell. There's, there's two or three key reasons why Jesus does this. You know, every, every time he heals someone in a miracle stories, he almost always says, don't tell anyone. And usually that's because he doesn't want people to think of him as someone who's going to be a rebel leader, right? He's going to start an insurrection. Or he also doesn't want people to focus on his miracles so much they want, he wants them to focus on who he really is, right? I don't want you to get distracted by demanding miracles. I want you to understand that the miracle points to me as a son of God, as, as the, the Holy One, as the Messiah. But here he tells his lead disciple and his disciples at large. Don't tell anyone 
because you don't really understand what that word means. So your, your understanding of Messiah is not complete, and you're going to get people distracted. It's not time. There's going to be a time where I'm going to send you out again, and I'm going to send you out with what, who I am, and to go ye therefore and, and make disciples of all kinds of people. He says, but listen, listen to me. You're not there yet. You're not there yet. And he's about to really adjust Peter's view and the disciples' view of who he is. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. If you read that verse in context, it really kind of throws you off, right? Because here's Peter saying, Jesus, you're Lord, you're the greatest king of all. You're incredible. You're amazing. You're going to take over the world. Jesus, I'm so excited. I'm going to be the prime minister. Uh, I'm going to be in your cabinet. I'm going to be director of communication or something, and, and people are going to admire me. Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be killed by the religious leaders. How could that be? Jesus, that's not possible. How could it be that you would be killed? You're the most powerful person on earth. And oh, by the way, Jesus, um, I, if you get killed, you're not going to solve my problems, maybe. And I'm not going to be this great person. I'm not going to be admired. I'm not going to be wealthy. I'm not going to be uh, the leader of the world. We're not going to be able to throw off the Romans. Jesus, how could this be? At this point, we've got to step back and go, wait a minute. If Jesus is Lord, what business do you have, Peter, of telling him he's wrong? What business do you have, Peter, of rebuking rebuking him that's that's to say that you're wrong don't talk like this don't do this jesus see those two things it's hard to imagine they exist in the same person isn't it jesus your lord jesus you're wrong but that's how we are in it have you ever told jesus jesus i don't like how you're doing this jesus i don't like the fact that you're not fixing this problem for me. Jesus, I don't like what you're allowing to happen in the world. Jesus, I don't think it's right. You need to stop this. Have you ever said that to him? If you've ever suffered at all, chances are you've gotten there in some way. Jesus, I don't like what's going on. I think you need to stop this. Jesus, I rebuke you. We have to be aware that that's how we can be. And we can change from worshiping Jesus to rebuking Jesus in a heartbeat. One incident is all it really takes for us to turn and say, Jesus, you're wrong. Watch what Jesus does, though. Peter says, begins to rebuke him. And then right in the next verse, he says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He responds to Peter in the same way that Peter responded to him. And he said, it's almost hard to even read. 
Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you are voicing the words and the ideas of the enemy himself from the pit of hell, from the one who wants to destroy, from the accuser, from the one who hates mankind, from the one who rebelled against God and got kicked out of, the, out of heaven. Peter, you're, you're on the side of Satan. Get away from me. And here's what you've got to understand. When you think of Satan and Jesus, what happened? Jesus has been tempted by Satan. And Satan has said three types of temptations. He said, one, Jesus, use your power to meet your own needs, right? Jesus, you're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Turn the stones into bread. Use your power for your benefit, for your appetites. Jesus, do this. Oh, that's not enough. You, bread, uh, man cannot live by anything by bread alone. Well, what about this? What about this, Jesus? Why don't you show your power to show the world how awesome you are and make people think you are so great. So jump off this high point and God's angels will keep you from dashing your foot against the stone. Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord God to test. Not test him. Don't use, we're not going to use his power just to show off. Oh, but Jesus, Satan says, why don't, why don't you fall down and worship me and I'll give you the world and you won't have to go to that cross. You won't have to suffer, Jesus. There's a shortcut. There's another way. There's a way around this. You don't need to sacrifice for these people. Just bow down and worship me and I will cause them to worship you. Jesus, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you have the same message as, the, as Satan had for me. See, Satan wanted to stop Jesus from paying the price for my sin and for yours. And Peter was parroting the same thing. Jesus, don't go to the cross. You don't need to do that. You're better than King David. But Jesus had a much higher sight, didn't he? Because Jesus knew that Peter and you and I needed for him to pay for our sin. That if he didn't go to the cross, there would be no payment for our sin. There would be no forgiveness. There would be no ultimate sacrifice. Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. Because I want to make you holy, not great. Peter, I want to make you like me. I'm not interested in giving you some great and awesome, powerful position in this world and have you separated from me. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God kicked Adam and Eve out. Why? Because if they stayed and they had access to the tree of life, they would have been separated from Jesus and from God in their sin forever. Jesus says, I want to make you holy. I want to make you like me rather than great. How does that hit you? Is that a good thing? Would you like to be like Jesus or would you rather have a great, successful, admirable life? I know what you're thinking. I want to have both. Right? Hey, isn't that how this works? Isn't that what it's supposed to be like? Jesus, you're the most powerful being in the world. You love me, therefore you want to give me great stuff and cause me to be thought of as wonderful and fantastic and successful? And good-looking for some of you, others of us, it's too late. Think about that. Do you want to be like Jesus? 
Really? Or do you just expect Jesus to give you a great life? See, Jesus loves us too much to stop with life on this earth. He wants to make us great in his kingdom, which begins on this earth, but continues to a great place in heaven. That's what he's all about. He came to make you holy like him rather than great. But secondly, we have to understand that Jesus says, if you in fact oppose that process of making you holy, you are on the side of Satan. You're taking the side of the enemy. You are opposing Jesus when you rebuke him, when you tell him it shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't have to go through this, Jesus. I shouldn't have to suffer. I shouldn't have to pay this price. You're saying to Jesus, I'm saying the same thing as Satan said. I shouldn't have to go through this. I shouldn't have to suffer. And as a result, thirdly, you are placing yourself far from Jesus. Because what did he say? Get away from me, Satan. Get away from me. This kind of thinking cannot be your thinking if you're a follower of mine. It sounds good. Sounds like it should be right, but it's not right. Because Jesus knows it's far better to make us holy than to make us great. Psalm 73, I would encourage you to read this psalm uh, today. Uh, it's, it's powerful because it says this. It, the psalmist says, you know, I almost stumbled, paraphrased. I almost stumbled. I, I, gee, God is great, but I almost stumbled when I considered the prosperity of the wicked. And when I thought about all these people who are far from you, God, who are, who are wicked, who deny this word of God, and I thought of how prosperous they are, I almost stumbled. I almost got distracted. I almost fell away from you. Then he talks about their great lives and the great food that they eat and the, the fun that they have and the fact that they don't care about stuff and they're not affected by the stuff most of us are affected by until he gets down to about verse 16. He said, I thought all of this until I looked into the sanctuary of God. Until I looked into what you were actually doing and I saw that you have placed their feet on slippery ground and that soon they would be swept away in terror. See, prosperity is not always a blessing. In fact, it's often a curse that keeps us comfortably separated from God. Jesus didn't come to make you great. He came to make you like him. He came to make you holy. And when we oppose that, we're taking the side of Satan. And as a result, we find us very far from him. Let me ask you, do you feel close to Jesus right now? Are you feeling that perfect submission, all is at rest? Or are you constantly at war with Jesus? And does your prayer life sound more like rebuke and complaint rather than repentance and submission? That's when you're far from God. We judge God very much like we judge our favorite sports team who lost that week. You're supposed to give me victory. You're supposed to win. Otherwise, I'm going to choose a different team, right? But God says, I came to make you holy. Some of you might say, you know what? I don't know if I like this following Jesus thing. Seems to me like 
Sounds, sounds pretty rough. Let me, let me give you a couple of things. The alternative is really much worse. If you reject Jesus, you choose the side of evil. You choose the side of Satan. Think that for a minute. No Holy Spirit to live inside of you. No walk with Him. No incredible purpose to help others know Jesus. No, no joy of the Lord. No fruit of the Spirit. No future in heaven. Is that really where you want to be? But second, walking with Jesus and being made holy by Jesus is awesome. Because you can repent of your sin and He can make you clean. He can make you innocent. He gives you this incredible purpose and His Spirit lives within you. God Himself dwells with you. Where are you today? Are your, is your ambition for Jesus to make you great? Or is it to make you holy like Him? Do you want to be like Jesus? When you have a setback, when something doesn't go your way, when, when things aren't quite right, when, um, when you lose, when you get that bill that you didn't expect, when you get that diagnosis that you dreaded, when you have that financial setback, how do you view that? Do you hold your fist up at God and say, how did you let this happen? Or you say to Jesus, would you use this to make me like you? To make me holy. Would you, would you use this to make me holy? Because I want to be like you, Jesus. More than I want to be great. Or when you have a victory, do you say to this victory, well, this proves that Jesus loves me. I got this financial windfall. I got this great thing happen. This proves that Jesus loves me. And as long as he continues to make me healthy and wealthy, I'm going to be following. No, wait a minute. Jesus, would you let this victory make me holy? Would you let this victory make me like you? Because I look forward, Jesus, to that ultimate victory in heaven. And I'm so glad that on this earth I can enjoy his presence and enjoy his people and enjoy his purpose, even as we are all going through some difficult times. I'm so grateful for that. That Jesus loved us way too much to focus on this earth and greatness here. He had a much greater plan for you. See, this world is preparation. It's learning to walk with him. It's learning to enjoy him. It's learning to worship him. It's learning to help other people know him. That's what this time is. It's brief. And I believe that God is calling his people to want to be like him. As John Mark Comer says in his excellent book, God Has a Name, God wants, Jesus wants to call you to be his apprentice. And learn how to do all these things. And learn his greatness and worship him. And one day we'll gather together and there'll be no more crying, nor mourning, nor pain. But in this life, there's going to be challenge. But I urge you, let Jesus make you holy rather than great. Would you bow with me? Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.